Chapter sixty four, part two of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter sixty four, part two. The arms of Genghis and his lieutenants successively reduced the hordes of the desert, who pitched their tents between the wall of China and the Volga, and the Mughal emperor became the monarch of the pastoral world, the lord of many millions of shepherds and soldiers, who felt their united strength, and were impatient to rush on the mild and wealthy climates of the south. His ancestors had been the tributaries of the Chinese emperors, and Temugin himself had been disgraced by a title of honour and servitude. The court of Pekin was astonished by an embassy from its former vassal, who, in the tone of the king of nations, exacted the tribute and obedience which he had paid, and who affected to treat the son of heaven as the most contemptible of mankind. A haughty answer disguised their secret apprehensions, and their fears were soon justified by the march of innumerable squadrons, who pierced on all sides the feeble rampart of the great wall. Ninety cities were stormed or starved by the Mughals ten only escaped, and Genghis, from a knowledge of the filial piety of the Chinese, covered his vanguard with their captive parents, an unworthy and by degrees a fruitless abuse of the virtue of his enemies. His invasion was supported by the revolt of a hundred thousand Khitans, who guarded the frontier. Yet he listened to a treaty, and the princes of China, three thousand horses, five hundred youth, and as many virgins, and a tribute of gold and silk with the price of his retreat." In his second expedition, he compelled the Chinese emperor to retire beyond the Yellow River to a more southern residence. The siege of Pekin was long and laborious. The inhabitants were reduced by famine to decimate and devour their fellow citizens. When their ammunition was spent, they discharged ingots of gold and silver from their engines. But the Mughals introduced a mine to the centre of the capital, and the conflagration of the palace burned above thirty days. China was desolated by Tartar war and domestic faction, and the five northern provinces were added to the empire of Genghis. In the west he touched the dominions of Mohammed, Sultan of Karizm, who reigned from the Persian Gulf to the borders of India and Turkestan, and who, in the proud imitation of Alexander the Great, forgot the servitude and ingratitude of his fathers to the house of Seljuk. It was the wish of Genghis to establish a friendly and commercial intercourse with the most powerful of the Muslim princes, nor could he be tempted by the secret solicitations of the Caliph of Baghdad, who sacrificed to his personal wrongs the safety of the church and state. A rash and inhuman deed provoked and justified the Tartar arms in the invasion of the southern Asian. A caravan of three ambassadors and one hundred and fifty merchants were arrested and murdered at Otrar by the command of Mohammed nor was it till after a demand and denial of justice, till he had prayed and fasted three nights on a mountain, that the Mughal emperor appealed to the judgment of God and his sword. Our European battles, says a philosophic writer, are petty skirmishes if compared to the numbers that have fought and fallen in the fields of Asia. Seven hundred thousand Mughals and Tartars are said to have marched under the standard of Genghis and his four sons. In the vast plains that extend to the north of the Sihon, or Jaxartes, they were encountered by four hundred thousand soldiers of the Sultan, and in the first battle, which was suspended by the night, 
one hundred and sixty thousand Charismians were slain. Mohammed was astonished by the multitude and valour of his enemies. He withdrew from the scene of danger, and distributed his troops in the frontier towns, trusting that the barbarians, invincible in the field, would be repulsed by the length and difficulty of so many regular sieges. But the prudence of Genghis had formed a body of Chinese engineers, skilled in the mechanic arts, informed perhaps of the secret of gunpowder, and capable, under his discipline, of attacking a foreign country with more vigour and success than they had defended their own. <clears throat> the Persian historians will relate the sieges and reduction of Otrar, Kohende, Bokhara, Samarkand, Karisme, Herat, Marau, Nizabur, Balch, and Kandahar, and the conquest of the rich and populous countries of Transoxiana, Karisme, and Khorazan. The destructive hostilities of Attila and the Huns have long since been elucidated by the example of Zingis and the Mughals, and in this more proper place I shall be content to observe that, from the Caspian to the Indus, they ruined a tract of many hundred miles, which was adorned with the habitations and labours of mankind, and that five centuries have not been sufficient to repair the ravages of four years. The Mughal emperor encouraged or indulged the fury of his troops. The hope of future possession was lost in the ardour of rapine and slaughter, and the cause of the war exasperated their native fierceness by the pretence of justice and revenge. The downfall and death of the Sultan Mohammed, who expired, unpitied and alone, in a desert island of the Caspian Sea, is a poor atonement for the calamities of which he was the author. Could the Charismian Empire have been saved by a single hero, it would have been saved by his son Galaleddin, whose active valour repeatedly checked the Mughals in the career of victory. Retreating, as he fought, to the banks of the Indus, he was oppressed by their innumerable host, till, in the last moment of despair, Galaleddin spurred his horse into the waves, swam one of the broadest and most rapid rivers of Asia, and extorted the admiration and applause of Genghis himself. It was in this camp that the Mughal conqueror yielded with reluctance to the murmurs of his weary and wealthy troops, who sighed for the enjoyment of their native land. Encumbered with the spoils of Asia, he slowly measured back his footsteps, betrayed some pity for the misery of the vanquished, and declared his intention of rebuilding the cities which had been swept away by the tempest of his arms. After he had repassed the Oxus and Jaxartes, he was joined by two generals, whom he had detached with thirty thousand horse to subdue the western provinces of Persia. They had trampled on the nations which opposed their passage, penetrated through the gates of Durband, traversed the Volga and the desert, and accomplished the circuit of the Caspian Sea by an expedition which had never been attempted, and has never been repeated. The return of Genghis was signalized by the overthrow of the rebellious or independent kingdoms of Tartary, and he died in the fullness of years and glory, with his last breath exhorting and instructing his sons to achieve the conquest of the Chinese Empire. The harem of Genghis was composed of five hundred wives and concubines, and of his numerous progeny, four sons, illustrious by their birth and merit, exercised under their father the principal offices of peace and war. Tushi was his great huntsman, Zagatai his judge, Oktai his minister, and Tuli his general, and their names and actions are often conspicuous in the history of his conquests. Firmly united for their own and the public interest, the three brothers and their families were content with dependent sceptres, and Oktai, by general consent, was proclaimed Great Khan, or Emperor of the Mughals and Tartars. He was succeeded by his son Gayuk, 
after whose death the empire devolved to his cousins Mangu and Kublai, the sons of Tuli, and the grandsons of Zingis. In the sixty-eight years of his four first successors, the Mogul subdued almost all Asia and a large portion of Europe. Without confining myself to the order of time, without expatiating on the detail of events, I shall present a general picture of the progress of their arms. One in the east, two in the south, three in the west, and four in the north. 1. Before the invasion of Zingis, China was divided into two empires or dynasties of the north and south, and the differences of origin and interest were smoothed by a general conformity of laws, language, and national manners. The northern empire, which had been dismembered by Zingis, was finally subdued seven years after his death. After the loss of Pekin, the emperor had fixed his residence at Kaifeng, a city many leagues in circumference, and which contained, according to the Chinese annals, 1,400,000 families of inhabitants and fugitives. He escaped from thence with only seven horsemen, and made his last stand in a third capital, till at length the hopeless monarch, protesting his innocence and accusing his fortune, ascended a funeral pile and gave orders that, as soon as he had stabbed himself, the fire should be kindled by his attendants. The dynasty of the Song, the native and ancient sovereigns of the whole empire, survived about forty-five years the fall of the northern usurpers, and the perfect conquest was reserved for the arms of Kublai. During this interval, the Mughals were often diverted by foreign wars, and, if the Chinese seldom dared to meet their victors in the field, their passive courage presented an endless succession of cities to storm and of millions to slaughter. In the attack and defence of places, the engines of antiquity and the Greek fire were alternately employed. The use of gunpowder in cannon and bombs appears as a familiar practice, and the sieges were conducted by the Mohammedans and Franks, who had been liberally invited into the service of Kublai. After passing the great river, the troops and artillery were conveyed along a series of canals, till they invested the royal residence of Hamche, or Quincy, in the country of Silk, the most delicious climate of China. The emperor, a defenceless youth, surrendered his person and sceptre, and before he was sent in exile into Tartary, he struck nine times the ground with his forehead, to adore in prayer or thanksgiving the mercy of the great Khan. Yet the war, it was now styled a rebellion, was still maintained in the southern provinces from Hamche to Canton, and the obstinate remnant of independence and hostility was transported from the land to the sea. But when the fleet of the Song was surrounded and oppressed by a superior armament, their last champion leapt into the waves with his infant emperor in his arms. "'It is more glorious,' he cried, "'to die a prince than to live a slave.' A hundred thousand Chinese imitated his example, and the whole empire, from Tonkin to the Great Wall, submitted to the dominion of Kublai. His boundless ambition aspired to the conquest of Japan. His fleet was twice shipwrecked, and the lives of a hundred thousand Mughals and Chinese were sacrificed in the fruitless expedition. But the circumjacent kingdoms, Korea, Tonkin, Cochin China, Peku, Bengal, and Tibet, were reduced in different degrees of tribute and obedience by the effort or terror of his arms. He explored the Indian Ocean with a fleet of a thousand ships. They sailed in sixty-eight days, most probably to the Isle of Borneo, under the equinoctial line, and though they returned not without spoil or glory, the emperor was dissatisfied that the savage king had escaped from their hands. 2. The conquest of Hindustan by the Mughals was reserved in a later period for the house of Timur, but that of Iran, 
or Persia, was achieved by Halogu Khan, the grandson of Zhingis, the brother and lieutenant of the two successive emperors Mangu and Kublai. I shall not enumerate the crowd of sultans, emirs, and atabeks whom he trampled into dust, but the extirpation of the assassins, or Ismailians, of Persia, may be considered as a service to mankind. Among the hills to the south of the Caspian, these odious sectaries had reigned with impunity above a hundred and sixty years, and their prince or imam established his lieutenant to lead and govern the colony of Mount Libanus, so famous and formidable in the history of the Crusades. With the fanaticism of the Koran, the Ismailians had blended the Indian transmigration and the visions of their own prophets, and it was their first duty to devote their souls and bodies in blind obedience to the vicar of God. The daggers of his missionaries were felt both in the east and west. The Christians and the Muslims enumerate, and persons multiply, the illustrious victims that were sacrificed to the zeal, avarice, or resentment of the old man, as he was corruptly styled, of the mountain. But these daggers, his only arms, were broken by the sword of Hulagu, and not a vestige is left of the enemies of mankind, except the word assassin, which, in the most odious sense, has been adopted in the languages of Europe. The extinction of the Abbasides cannot be indifferent to the spectators of their greatness and decline. Since the fall of their Seljukian tyrants, the caliphs had recovered their lawful dominion of Baghdad and the Arabian Iraq, but the city was distracted by theological factions, and the commander of the faithful was lost in a harem of seven hundred concubines. The invasion of the Mughals he encountered with feeble arms and haughty embassies. On the divine decree, said the caliph Mostasim, is founded the throne of the sons of Abbas, and their foes shall surely be destroyed in this world and in the next. Who is this Holagu that dares to rise against them? If he be desirous of peace, let him instantly depart from the sacred territory, and perhaps he may obtain from our clemency the pardon of his fault. This presumption was cherished by a perfidious vizier, who assured his master that, even if the barbarians had entered the city, the women and children from the terraces would be sufficient to overwhelm them with stones. But when Holagu touched the phantom, it instantly vanished into smoke. After a siege of two months, Baghdad was stormed and sacked by the Mughals, and their savage commander pronounced the death of the Caliph Mostasem, the last of the temporal successors of Mohammed, whose noble kinsman of the race of Abbas had reigned in Asia above five hundred years. Whatever might be the designs of the conqueror, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina were protected by the Arabian desert, but the Mughals spread beyond the Tigris and Euphrates, pillaged Aleppo and Damascus, and threatened to join the Franks in the deliverance and threatened to join the Franks in the deliverance of Jerusalem. Egypt was lost, had she been defended only by her feeble offspring, but the Mamelukes had breathed in their infancy the keenness of a Scythian air. Equal in valour, superior in discipline, they met the Mughals in many a well-fought field, and drove back the stream of hostility to the eastward of the Euphrates. But it overflowed with resistless violence the kingdoms of Armenia and Anatolia, of which the former was possessed by the Christians and the latter by the Turks. The sultans of Iconium opposed some resistance to the Mughal arms, till Azadin sought a refuge among the Greeks of Constantinople, and his feeble successors, the last of the Seljukian dynasty, were finally extirpated by the Khans of Persia. 3. 
No sooner had Octai subverted the northern empire of China than he resolved to visit with his arms the most remote countries of the West. Fifteen hundred thousand moguls and Tartars were inscribed on the military roll. Of these, the great Khan selected a third, which he entrusted to the command of his nephew Batu, the son of Tuli, who reigned over his father's conquests to the north of the Caspian Sea. After a festival of forty days, Batu set forwards on this great expedition, and such was the speed and ardour of his innumerable squadrons that in less than six years they had measured a line of ninety degrees of longitude, a fourth part of the circumference of the globe. The great rivers of Asia and Europe, the Volga and Kama, the Don and Borystanus, the Vistula and Danube, they either swam with their horses or passed on the ice, or traversed in leathern boats, which followed the camp, and transported their wagons and artillery. By the first victories of Batu, the remains of national freedom were eradicated in the immense plains of Turkestan and Kipsak. In his rapid progress he overran the kingdoms, as they are now styled, of Astrakhan and Kazan, and the troops which he detached towards Mount Caucasus explored the most secret recesses of Georgia and Circassia. The civil discord of the great dukes, or princes of Russia, betrayed their country to the Tartars. They spread from Livonia to the Black Sea, and both Moscow and Kiev, the modern and the ancient capitals, were reduced to ashes, a temporary ruin less fatal than the deep and perhaps indelible mark which a servitude of two hundred years has imprinted on the character of the Russians. The Tartars ravaged with equal fury the countries which they hoped to possess and those which they were hastening to leave. From the permanent conquest of Russia they made a deadly, though transient, inroad into the heart of Poland and as far as the borders of Germany. The cities of Lublin and Krakow were obliterated. They approached the shores of the Baltic, and in the Battle of Lignitz they defeated the Dukes of Silesia, the Polish Palatines, and the great master of the Teutonic Order, and filled nine sacks with the right ears of the slain. From Lignitz, the extreme point of their western march, they turned aside to the invasion of Hungary, and the presence or spirit of Batu inspired the host of five hundred thousand men. The Carpathian hills could not be long impervious to their divided columns, and their approach had been fondly disbelieved till it was irresistibly felt. The king, Bela IV, assembled the military force of his counts and bishops, but he had alienated the nation by adopting a vagrant horde of forty thousand families of Comans, and these savage guests were provoked to revolt by the suspicion of treachery and the murder of their prince. The whole country north of the Danube was lost in a day, and depopulated in a summer, and the ruins of cities and churches were overspread with the bones of the natives, who expiated the sins of their Turkish ancestors. An ecclesiastic, who fled from the sack of Varadin, describes the calamities which he had seen or suffered, and the sanguinary rage of sieges and battles is far less atrocious than the treatment of the fugitives, who had been allured from the woods under a promise of peace and pardon, and who were coolly slaughtered as soon as they had performed the labours of the harvest and vintage. In the winter the Tartars passed the Danube on the ice, and advanced to Gran or Stragonium, a German colony, and the metropolis of the kingdom. Thirty engines were planted against the walls, the ditches were filled with sacks of earth and dead bodies, and after promiscuous massacre three hundred noble matrons were slain in the presence of the Khan. Of all the cities and fortresses of Hungary, three alone survived the Tartar invasion, and the unfortunate Bata hid his head among the islands of the Adriatic. The Latin world was darkened by this cloud of savage hostility. 
a Russian fugitive carried the alarm to Sweden, and the remote nations of the Baltic and the ocean trembled at the approach of the Tartars, whom their fear and ignorance were inclined to separate from the human species. Since the invasion of the Arabs in the eighth century, Europe had never been exposed to a similar calamity, and if the disciples of Mohammed would have oppressed her religion and liberty, it might be apprehended that the shepherds of Scythia would extinguish her cities, her arts, and all the institutions of civil society. The Roman pontiff attempted to appease and convert these invincible pagans by a mission of Franciscan and Dominican friars, but he was astonished by the reply of the Khan, that the sons of God and of Genghis were invested with a divine power to subdue or extirpate the nations, and that the Pope would be involved in the universal destruction unless he visited in person and as a suppliant the royal horde. The Emperor, Frederick II, embraced a more generous mode of defence, and his letters to the kings of France and England and the princes of Germany represented the common danger and urged them to arm their vessels in this just and rational crusade. The Tartars themselves were awed by the fame and valour of the Franks. The town of Neustadt in Austria was bravely defended against them by fifty knights and twenty crossbows, and they raised the siege on the appearance of a German army. After wasting the adjacent kingdoms of Servia, Bosnia, and Bulgaria, Batu slowly retreated from the Danube to the Volga to enjoy the rewards of victory in the city and palace of Sarai, which started at his command from the midst of the desert. 4. Even the poor and frozen regions of the north attracted the arms of the Mughals. Shabani Khan, the brother of the great Batu, led a horde of fifteen thousand families into the wilds of Siberia, and his descendants reigned at Toboskoy above three centuries, till the Russian conquest. The spirit of enterprise which pursued the cause of the Obi and Yenisei must have led to the discovery of the ICC. After brushing away the monstrous fables of men with dogs' heads and cloven feet, we shall find that, fifteen years after the death of Zingis, the Mughals were informed of the name and manners of the Samoyeds in the neighbourhood of the Polar Circle, who dwelled in subterraneous huts, and derived their furs and their food from the sole occupation of hunting. While China, Syria, and Poland were invaded at the same time by the Mughals and Tartars, the authors of the mighty mischief were content with the knowledge and declaration that their word was the sword of death. Like the first caliphs, the first successors of Zingis, seldom appeared in person at the head of their victorious armies. On the banks of the Onon and Selinga, the royal or golden horde exhibited the contrast of simplicity and greatness, of the roasted sheep and mare's milk which composed their banquets, and of a distribution in one day of five hundred wagons of gold and silver. The ambassadors and princes of Europe and Asia were compelled to undertake this distant and laborious pilgrimage, and the life and reign of the great dukes of Russia, the kings of Georgia and Armenia, the sultans of Iconium, and the emirs of Persia, were decided by the frown or smile of the great Khan. The sons and grandsons of Zingis had been accustomed to the pastoral life, but the village of Karakorum was gradually ennobled by their election and residence. A change of manners is implied in the removal of Oktai and Mangu from a tent to a house, and their example was imitated by the princes of their family and the great officers of the empire. Instead of the boundless forest, 
the enclosure of a park afforded the more indolent pleasures of the chase their new habitations were decorated with painting and sculpture their superfluous treasures were cast in fountains and basins and statues of massy silver and the artists of china and paris vied with each other in the service of the great khan karakorum contained two streets the one of chinese mechanics the other of mohammedan traders and the places of religious worship one nestorian church two mosques and twelve temples of various idols may represent in some degree the number and division of inhabitants yet a french missionary declares that the town of st denis near paris was more considerable than the tartar capital and that the whole palace of mangou was scarcely equal to a tenth part of that benedictine abbey the conquests of russia and syria might amuse the vanity of the great khans but they were seated on the borders of china the acquisition of that empire was the nearest and most interesting object and they might learn from the pastoral economy that it is for the advantage of the shepherd to protect and propagate his flock i have already celebrated the wisdom and virtue of a mandarin who prevented the desolation of five populous and cultivated provinces in a spotless administration of thirty years this friend of his country and of mankind continually laboured to mitigate or suspend the havoc of war to save the monuments and to rekindle the flame of science to restrain the military commander by the restoration of civil magistrates and to instil the love of peace and justice into the minds of the moguls he struggled with the barbarism of the first conquerors but his salutary lessons produced a rich harvest in the second generation the northern and by degrees the southern empire acquiesced in the government of kublai the lieutenant and afterwards the successor of mangu and the nation was loyal to a prince who had been educated in the manners of china he restored the forms of her venerable constitution and the victors submitted to the laws the fashions and even the prejudices of the vanquished people this peaceful triumph which has been more than once repeated may be ascribed in a great measure to the numbers and servitude of the chinese the mogul army was dissolved in a vast and populous country and their emperors adopted with pleasure a political system which gives to the prince the solid substance of despotism and leaves to the subject the empty names of philosophy freedom and filial obedience under the reign of kublai letters and commerce peace and justice were restored the great canal of five hundred miles was opened from nankin to the capital he fixed his residence at pekin and displayed in his court the magnificence of the greatest monarch of asia yet this learned prince declined from the pure and simple religion of his great ancestor he sacrificed to the idol foe and his blind attachment to the lamas of tibet and the bonzes of china provoked the censure of the disciples of confucius his successors polluted the palace with a crowd of eunuchs physicians and astrologers while thirteen millions of their subjects were consumed in the provinces by famine one hundred and forty years after the death of Genghis, his degenerate race the dynasty of the yuan was expelled by a revolt of the native chinese and the mogul emperors were lost in the oblivion of the desert before this revolution 
they had forfeited their supremacy over the dependent branches of their house the khans of kipsak and russia the khans of zagatai or transoxiana and the khans of iran or persia by their distance and power these royal lieutenants had soon been released from the duties of obedience and after the death of kublai they scorned to accept a sceptre or a title from his unworthy successors according to their respective situations they maintained the simplicity of the pastoral life or assumed the luxury of the cities of asia but the princes and their hordes were alike disposed for the reception of a foreign worship after some hesitation between the gospel and the koran they conformed to the religion of mohammed and while they adopted for their brethren the arabs and persians they renounced all intercourse with the ancient moguls the idolaters of china End of chapter 64, part 2